before Muhammad Ali, before Mike Tyson, before George Foreman, Sonny Liston, or Joe Lewis, there was Jack Johnson, who not only became the first African-American heavyweight championship boxer, but who also lived and loved in Chicago and opened the wildly popular Cafe de Champion before tragedy and the government forced its closure. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, this episode deals with topics like racism, prostitution, domestic violence, suicide, and other mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Arthur John Johnson was born on March 31, 1878 in Galveston, Texas, to former slaves. His father, Henry, worked as a school janitor, while his mother, Tina, was a laundress. Jack, as Arthur would later be known, was the third of nine children and only one of five to reach adulthood. He had just five years of schooling before he stopped attending in order to work to help support his family. In his teens, Johnson left Galveston for Dallas, Texas, working for Walter Lewis, who hired Johnson to paint carriages. Lewis also introduced Johnson to boxing. Jack Johnson moved back to Galveston, his interest in boxing growing, and got a job cleaning a gym, eventually saving enough money to buy a pair of boxing gloves. In 1895, barely 17 years old, Johnson boxed his first match and won the purse $1.50. It was just a few years later, Johnson allegedly married a childhood friend named Mary Austin. I say allegedly, as Johnson said he did in his 1927 autobiography, but no record of the marriage exists, and Johnson was a bit of a storyteller. On December 15, 1895, Charles A. Dana, the editor of the New York Sun newspaper, warned readers, quote, The black man is rapidly forging to the front ranks in athletics, especially in the field of fisticuffs. We're in the midst of a black rise against white supremacy, end quote. Jack Johnson, realizing he needed a bigger city and bigger fights to make this boxing thing work, left Galveston in 1899 and traveled to Chicago. There he discovered to get fights, he'd need a manager, a white manager. Unsuccessful in landing a manager, Johnson then traveled to Springfield, Illinois, where he met a saloon owner willing to hire him as the fifth man in a battle royal. Uh, this was kind of a new one for me. I learned that Battles Royal started in the Jim Crow South and sadly made their way to other parts of the country. Several men, usually black, were given boxing gloves, then blindfolded, then placed in a boxing ring. All at once, they began to fight, keep in mind, completely blindfolded, with the last man standing declared the winner. Oof. Johnson won the fight and caught the eye of Jack Curley, an assistant to P.J. Patty Carroll, a boxing promoter. Carroll and Curley brought Johnson back to Chicago, where he worked as a trainer and sparring partner, eager to get in the ring. On May 1, 1900, the 6-foot, 1-inch, 225-pound Jack Johnson battled his first white opponent, an Australian named Jim Scanlon, who Johnson knocked out in the seventh round. 
A few other boxing matches transpired, and after a bit of legal trouble back in his hometown of Galveston, Texas, that landed him in jail for 23 days, Johnson and Mary Austin left for the West Coast after a short stay in Denver to try his hand in the California boxing circuit. By 1902, Jack Johnson had at least 27 wins on his record and wanted to take on the current heavyweight champion, Jim Jeffries. Jeffries, however, refused to fight Jack Johnson or any black boxer. At the end of 1903, newspapers and sporting magazines had taken notice of Jack Johnson's abilities and were calling for Jeffries to fight Johnson. Jeffries once again refused and early the next year announced his retirement, having defeated, quote, all logical challengers, end quote. Jeffries did say that before he retired to his alfalfa farm, he would referee about between two white heavyweights. The winner would be declared heavyweight champion. After that fight, when the prevailing boxer Marvin Hart was declared winner, Hart declared he would gladly meet, quote, any man in the world in a fair fight, and then added, this challenge does not apply to colored people, end quote. One and a half years later, Hart lost to Canadian Tommy Burns. After the fight, Burns stated, I will defend my title as heavyweight champion of the world against all comers, none barred. By this I mean black, Mexican, Indian, or any other nationality, without regard to color, size, or nativity. I propose to be the champion of the world, not the white or the Canadian or the American or any other limited degree of champion. End quote. Burns later qualified this as saying he wanted to, quote, give the white boys a chance, end quote, first. It took nearly three years for Australian promoter Hugh, huge deal, cool nickname, Macintosh to come up with an offer Tommy Burns would accept in order to get him in the ring with Jack Johnson. $30,000, just over $900,000 in today's money, plus a big chunk of the profits from the fight films. On the day after Christmas, known in parts of the world as Boxing Day, not because of the sport, 1908, in Sydney, Australia, Tommy Burns met Jack Johnson in the ring in front of 20,000 spectators. 20,000 more were outside the stadium. The fight went 14 rounds until local police stopped the fight, stopping filming of the fight so that the world would not see a black man defeat a white man. Johnson was declared the winner and became the first black heavyweight champion of the world. 1908 trash talking in full effect. Johnson said after the fight, quote, I can lick Burns every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Of all the men I have ever met, he is the easiest. I could have knocked him out much sooner had I wished. I wanted to take a good revenge and had my satisfaction. End quote. After Burns' defeat, racist boxing fans, incensed by Johnson's win, began calling for someone to find the Great White Hope, a white boxer who could reclaim the heavyweight championship title from Johnson. A plea was made to retired heavyweight champion Jim Jeffries, who claimed to be happy on his alfalfa farm and continued to insist he would not fight again, but offered, quote, Tommy Burns' mistake, the one big mistake of his career, was letting Johnson have a chance to fight for the championship. 
When I was holding the title, I refused to let him have a chance, although I knew I could defeat him. I surely would not return to the ring to fight a Negro now. End quote. Jack Johnson toured vaudeville shows, joking and showing off feats of strength. Around this time, he was making roughly $1,300 per week, one and a half times as much as most working men could make in an entire year at that time. Life on the road was not easy for him, though. Many of the clubs at which the troops played would not let him in the heated dressing rooms, forcing him to get ready in the basement. Johnson returned to Chicago's South Side during the Great Migration, when tens of thousands of African Americans headed north to cities such as Chicago in search of better lives. He bought his now-widowed mother a beautiful Victorian house at 3344 South Wabash Avenue. Jack Johnson had a bit of fame now, but that fame could only get him so far. In March of 1909, he visited the infamous Chicago brothel known as the Everlay Club, but learned it catered only to white clients. Although he didn't get in, Johnson invited five of the white girls from the brothel, including one named Belle Schreiber, out for a ride in his car. That may be a euphemism. When the madams of the Everlay Club found out Schreiber had sex with Johnson, they fired her and at least four other girls. Belle Schreiber was a 23-year-old daughter of a policeman from Milwaukee. She had come to Chicago three years earlier for secretarial work, but preferred a little more excitement in her life. Soon Belle accompanied Jack Johnson everywhere, riding alongside Johnson in his expensive auto out in plain view of the disapproving public. While in New York at the Coney Island racetrack in October of 1909, Jack Johnson met a white woman named Etta Terry Durier. Etta Durier was married for six years to Clarence Durier, described as a, quote, wealthy clubman of New York City and Long Island and a millionaire horseman, end quote. In the spring of 1910, Etta Durier divorced her wealthy husband to be with Johnson. According to newspapers, Etta's friends in the East socially ostracized her. Once settled in Chicago, the local black community allegedly regarded Etta as, quote, an outcast from the white race, end quote. Adding to Etta's unhappiness was Jack Johnson continuing to spend time with other women, including Belle Schreiber, and he was pretty, pretty open about it. Johnson's relationships with white women at a time when interracial couples were not widely accepted and in some parts of the country were actually outlawed would continue to cause him trouble. After years of boxing fans asking whether he would put on his gloves again to beat Jack Johnson in the ring, retired heavyweight boxer and alfalfa grower Jim Jeffries agreed to do so. Granted, it may have had something to do with the money he was offered, as he was promised a guaranteed purse of $40,000. That's nearly $1.2 million in today's money. And a contract worth $75,000. In print, Jeffries claimed he was returning to the ring, quote, for the sole purpose of proving that a white man is better than a Negro, end quote. Spoiler, Jeffries was sorely mistaken. Although he dropped the nearly 100 pounds he had put on in the six years since his retirement, 
Jeffries was no match for Jack Johnson when they fought in Reno, Nevada, in 110-degree heat on July 4, 1910, in front of a crowd of 12,000 spectators. Johnson took him down by technical knockout in 15 rounds. It was the only loss in Jim Jeffries' career. Oh, I should jump back. At the beginning of the bout, Jim Jeffries refused to shake hands with his black opponent. Fortunately, all factions of white America at the time, including the hardcore racists, were completely cool with this outcome. I wish that were true. Here are a few of the cities that reported rioting due to the outcome of a boxing match. Ready? New York City, Pittsburgh, New Orleans, Atlanta, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Houston, Little Rock, Norfolk, Virginia, Columbus, Ohio, Jacksonville, Florida, Pueblo, Colorado, Fort Worth, Texas, Kansas City, and Washington, D.C. Shootings, stabbings, beatings, many resulting in the deaths of whites and African Americans, all because a black man won a boxing match against a white man. And here I thought the stuff that happens in modern day is bonkers. Christmas 1910, Jack Johnson, accusing Etta Durier of having an affair with his chauffeur, badly beats her, landing her in the hospital. Etta forgave Johnson and stayed with him, claiming her injuries were due to a fall from a streetcar. On January 18, 1911, Jack Johnson was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, appearing at a local theater. After the show, he and Etta went to a friend's hotel and were married by alderman John A. Fugasi. George Cole, a city detective, was best man. July of 1912 saw the opening of Jack Johnson's Cafe de Champion at 41 West 31st Street in Chicago. An article in the July 9th Chicago Tribune read that according to the owner, for elegance and taste, the eating houses of the world will be eclipsed. Four oil paintings at a cost of $15,000, about $430,000 in today's money, hung in the entertainment parlor. One was of Johnson in his boxing clothes, another of Johnson and his wife Etta, one of Johnson's father, and one of Johnson with his mother. As there were a few finishing touches still in the works, the club's manager, Henry Sterrett, claimed, quote, when we get things in shape, we will have the swellest place in Chicago. The floors are all mosaic inlaid from the front to the rear. The entertainment room will accommodate 500 people. The ceiling and walls in this room are all hand-decorated, not a bit of stencil work in the place. When asked if there would be a grand opening, manager Starrett said that a grand opening would be too plebeian for a place like Cafe de Champion. Instead, he said there would be, quote, an auspicious inaugural function, end quote. An augmented orchestra composed of the best colored talent in the country will provide music for the occasion, Starrett claimed. Celebrated vocalists whose names are familiar from coast to coast also will be in attendance, end quote. Indeed, the opening was delayed for a short time due to the late arrival of the wines and liquors, which Jack Johnson helped unload and open. Once Johnson himself opened the doors, the Black and Tan Club, so-called as it catered to blacks and whites, immediately filled up. A story in the July 11, 1912 Tribune offered, quote, When the doors were opened, in poured 119,983, 
That is, it seemed many members of the colored race endeavored to pile into the establishment. Unofficial estimates place Chicago's permanent black population at 120,000. It was said 17 of them were working or otherwise kept away from the Café de Champion. End quote. The article also contains some not-so-vaguely-racist lines. Uh, one was, The place was packed as the coal bin of the wise purchaser in midsummer, and the streets were black with people. On September 11, 1912, Etta Durier, who had been suffering from depression and had planned to travel to Las Vegas that day for her health, had what we would now call a panic attack and postponed the trip. Later that night, Etta dismissed her maids, asking them to pray for her. Alone, she went to a room above the Café de Champion. At 2 a.m. the next morning, with late-night partiers and full-swing floors below her, Etta Durier Johnson shot herself in the head. Hearing the shot, Jack Johnson's brother, Henry, told the orchestra to play loud music and rushed upstairs where he found his sister-in-law. Etta Durier was rushed to nearby Provident Hospital. When Jack Johnson returned to the Café de Champion, quote, he seemed much affected by the news that his wife had attempted suicide. He wiped his eyes and made audible manifestations of grief before leaving in his big touring car, together with his mother and sisters, for the hospital, end quote. Johnson reportedly had a few moments with Etta Durier before she passed, never having regained consciousness. Reports came quickly as to the reason for Etta's despondence, including one that referred to her being beaten by Johnson to the point of hospitalization. The press was vicious toward Johnson. The October 25, 1912 Los Angeles Times ran a front-page headline that read, quote, How Jack Johnson Tortured His White Wife. Also, The Story of a Beast. Jack Johnson drove his wife to suicide, and those are just at the top of the page. In the same newspaper was a story titled More Woe for Black Champ Jack Johnson, which discussed an investigation initiated by federal authorities to look into Johnson's relationships with chorus girls at the various shows in which Johnson performed. There is also mention of Johnson's restaurant and that the actual owners of the license, a brewery, were concerned that Johnson's legal issues might result in the city refusing to renew the license. Much of the language, maybe acceptable at the time, comes across as wildly racist now. Many times in both articles, Jack Johnson is not referred to by name, but simply as the Negro. The article is full of quotes from Etta's understandably upset mother, who does not sound like she was a fan of Johnson, and certainly blamed him for Etta's decision to end her own life. A letter was later found, written by Etta, intended for her mother, requesting to be buried in Chicago, and assuring her mother, quote, Jack has done all in his power to cure me, but it is no use. End quote. Also in October of 1912, Jack Johnson had his brother Charles arrested on charges of embezzlement. Two weeks later, Charles Johnson and an unnamed woman gave testimony to the grand jury in Chicago, telling the jury of, quote, numerous instances where his brother Jack took young white girls on trips in his private car, went on theatrical tours, traveling with them from state to state and keeping them at his training camp when he was preparing for a prize fight, end quote. This gave the government the evidence they needed to indict Johnson on charges of violating the Mann Act. 
The Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act, was written by Illinois Congressman James Robert Mann and signed into law by President Taft on June 25, 1910. The law banned the transportation of women across state lines, quote, for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose, end quote. Unfortunately, the law's vague wording did not include anything about consenting adults. Even before the death of Etta Durie Johnson by her own hand, Jack Johnson had taken up with another white woman, an 18-year-old from Minneapolis named Lucille Cameron. Cameron would later claim she fell in love with the boxer at first sight. Their budding romance was interrupted by the appearance of Lucille's mother, who traveled to Chicago to put a stop to things, telling reporters, quote, I would rather see my daughter spend the rest of her life in an insane asylum than to see her the plaything of a... And then she used the N-word. Lucille refused to leave, so her mother went to the police, claiming her daughter was abducted. On October 17, 1912, Johnson was arrested and charged with violating the Mann Act by kidnapping Lucille Cameron and transporting her from Milwaukee to Chicago for the purpose of prostitution. The case fell apart quickly as Lucille Cameron told prosecutors Johnson had never taken her anywhere or did anything against her will. One investigator told his supervisor that Lucille declared, quote, in every breath that she loved Jack Johnson, wanted to marry him, and would do so immediately on being given the opportunity, end quote. During a 1912 court appearance, Lucille Cameron was quoted as saying, I don't care whether he is white or black, I love him. Less than two weeks later, authorities in Chicago shut down the Café de Champion, claiming Jack Johnson, quote, is an undesirable person and of bad character, end quote. It had been open slightly more than three and a half months. With the case involving Lucille Cameron unraveling, federal authorities continued searching for someone to corroborate their narrative about Jack Johnson transporting white women across state lines and found someone willing to testify, Belle Schreiber. Now, from everything I've read, the parting of Jack Johnson and Belle Schreiber was fairly amicable. I didn't find a reason why she was eager to turn on Johnson, but with Schreiber's help, Johnson was arrested again on November 17, 1912. Two weeks later, on December 4, 1912, Jack Johnson married Lucille Cameron at his mother's home on South Wabash Avenue. Jack Johnson's trial began in Chicago on May 17, 1913. The all-white jury took less than two hours to find Johnson guilty. Two weeks later, on June 4, 1913, Jack Johnson was sentenced to a year and a day in the Joliet prison. Three weeks later, Johnson, free on a $30,000 bond, decided to skip bail and head north to Canada. Lucille Cameron Johnson was already there waiting for him. They boarded a ship and traveled to France, Johnson claiming he would never set foot in the United States again. Johnson continued to box overseas and, in a match in April of 1915 in Havana, Cuba, lost the heavyweight title when he was knocked out by Jess Willard in the 26th round. It wasn't until July of 1920 that Jack Johnson finally surrendered to U.S. authorities in Tijuana, Mexico. 
Two months later, he drove himself to the federal prison at Leavenworth, Kansas, to begin serving his sentence. He was released one year later. In February of 1924, Lucille Cameron filed for divorce from Johnson, charging him with, brace yourself, listener, infidelity. A year and a half later, Johnson was remarried, this time to a woman named Irene Pinot. They wed in Irene's hometown of Waukegan, Illinois. In 1936, Jack Johnson campaigned for the re-election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, claiming he knocked out Jim Jeffries in 1910, quote, because Jeffries was a Republican, end quote. It wasn't until June of 1937 when Joe Lewis knocked out Jimmy Braddock that another African-American boxer claimed the heavyweight champion of the world since Jack Johnson lost the title in 1915. Jack Johnson was killed in an auto accident outside of Raleigh, North Carolina in June of 1946. Traveling with a friend, Fred L. Scott, Johnson lost control of his auto, which overturned and hit a light pole. He was 68 years old. Johnson's boxing career lasted 29 years and included 109 major fights and exhibitions. Jack Johnson's life story was loosely used as the basis for a 1967 play called The Great White Hope, later adapted into the 1970 film of the same name with James Earl Jones in the lead role. Award-winning documentarian Ken Burns focused on Johnson's life in the 2004 film Unforgivable Blackness, based on a book of the same name. Chicago and Dorothy Cross, a great niece of Jack Johnson, fought for years to get Jack Johnson's name cleared through Cross's efforts, as well as the efforts of actor Sylvester Stallone, filmmaker Ken Burns, Senator John McCain, and others. Jack Johnson was pardoned posthumously on May 24, 2018. The house Johnson bought for his mother at 3344 South Wabash is long gone, and as of this recording, is a vacant lot across from Greek Row at Illinois Institute of Technology. The site of the Café de Champion is now the northern part of the IIT campus on 31st Street, just west of State Street. After Johnson's car accident, his body was returned to Chicago with his funeral held at Pilgrim Baptist Church on South Indiana Avenue in front of overflowing crowds. He was buried in Graceland Cemetery next to his wife, Etta Durier Johnson. for listening to today's episode about Jack Johnson and the Café de Champion. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to various books related to this episode's subject if you'd like to learn more anything ordered through those links not just the items listed may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you check out the chicago history podcast twitter facebook and instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week 
The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.